We are in 1 Kings. Uh, we've been traversing through these first several chapters for a couple of weeks now. This is, I think, week number five, and we're still in these sort of initial chapters. We've been uh, sort of camping out a little bit in 1 Kings chapters 4 through 11, uh, surveying the reign of King Solomon. And what I've striven to do is give you a very positive outlook on King Solomon's reign, only because I think that that is what uh, the historian here is doing. Uh, this morning, I just want to kick off... Or pick up right where we left off, excuse me, last time, which was at the end of chapter 8. We looked at all of chapter 8 in which the, the temple is complete, the, the, all of the temple construction is finished. And now we have this elaborate and very ornate ceremony in which Solomon prays and prays all these blessings on, this, on the temple itself and on the people in the temple to sort of dedicate everything to the Lord. He prays that all of this is, all that's, that's there, the people and the, and the fixtures and the furnishings, all of it would, would worship the Lord and also that the Lord would remember his name and remember his covenant. And in fact, at the end, we, we, we pinpointed that verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 59, where Solomon prays that God would maintain their cause. He says, and let these my words, Solomon prays. Wherewith I have made supplication before the Lord, be nigh unto the Lord our God day and night, that he may maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times as the matter shall require. And then in keeping much with Solomon's character, afterwards he throws a very lavish 14-day party. In fact, look at verse 65, because it didn't start out as a 14-day party. It was just going to be seven days, and then they kept going. It says in verse 65, and at that time Solomon held a feast and all Israel with him, a great congregation from the entering in of Hamath unto the river of Egypt before the Lord our God, seven days and seven days, even 14 days. And on the eighth day, he sent the people away and they blessed the king and went unto their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord had done for David, his servant and for Israel, his people. They're celebrating much that the Lord has accomplished up to this juncture. The temple is established, as we've noted. This is a huge moment for Israel. They are settled. They are at rest. All of God's promises are being fulfilled. They are at peace. The, the one who is now king over Israel, Solomon, his name means peace. Everything seems well. And indeed, I think that's what I've hoped to bring into your mind's eye, that this is one of the key takeaways of these chapters. All of the lavishness and the ornateness is a, is a positive remembering of the historian of Israel at its highest heights. It's an account of Israel uh, as she used to be, so to speak. He's not being exaggerant. He's not being sort of overblown in his language with, with all of the gold fixtures and all the incredible ceremony and all the, the fancy to do and all that stuff. He's getting into the mind's eye of us, the reader, but yes, even the readers that he was writing to, just how magnificent this kingdom was. Essentially, he's, he's sort of telling the story of the throne. You can, uh, sort of like how we would tell the story of the crown of Great Britain, so to speak. He's, he's telling the story of the throne and how it has transpired now into this uh, awesome, magnificent ruler who is bringing Israel to the heights of its power. And in the first two chapters, he, he tells the story of how this throne was protected. 
How it was transferred from King David to King Solomon. How it was preserved by, uh, from those who would seek to overthrow this throne. In chapter 3 of 1 Kings, he has told the story of how Israel's throne was blessed immensely as Solomon prays for wisdom and God gives him wisdom and then some. He continues that story in chapter 4. Chapters 5 through 8, as we've examined, tell the story of how this throne of Israel now has led to build a house for the Lord and how that is all complete. And in chapters 9 and 10, as we'll get to in a moment, he tells the story of how this throne influences kingdoms far and wide, far beyond they could, how they could ever imagine. Their influence is seen and heard of and known. Again, these are positive things. So often we assume all of the things about Solomon are negative, that he was this, this lavish playboy king who we should learn from in a very negative way, and then we're going to get to that. <laughs> But here the historian is bringing into uh, the eyes of those who are reading these lines just how richly blessed God's people were. God is a giving God. And here, these are the days of Israel's flourishing and thriving. All of which to say, this is what makes these verses in chapter 9 stand out. These verses that Pastor Nathan read. These first nine verses of chapter 9 here presents something that stands almost in stark contrast to the rest of the narrative so far. Because here God appears to Solomon, as it says there in verse 2 of chapter 9, for the second time. As, we, as it notes there, he, appears, he had appeared at Gibeon, all the way back in chapter 3, where Solomon was blessed with wisdom. God appears to him, and Solomon asks for wisdom from the Lord, and God grants him that request. And here, what proceeds to happen, this second appearing... It's almost entirely one of, 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 of warning. Of, of a, you get this sense of foreboding, this ominous air, uh, of all about the Lord's words. Notice again, verse 3. And the Lord said unto him, meaning Solomon, I have heard thy prayer, and thy supplication that thou hast made before me. I have, allowed, I have hallowed this house which thou hast built to put my name there forever. And mine eyes and mine heart shall be there perpetually. And if thou wilt walk before me as David thy father walked in integrity of heart and in uprightness to do according to all that I have commanded thee, and will keep my statutes and my judgments, then I will establish the throne of thy kingdom upon Israel forever, as I promised to David thy father, saying, There shall not fail thee a man upon the throne of Israel. But... If ye shall at all turn from following me, ye or your children, and will not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them. In contrast to this glowing history that has been iterated so far, stands these serious words of caution from the Lord himself. He appears to Solomon to remind him of just what's at stake. He recognizes, he affirms Solomon's devotion. As we've noted before, Solomon prays this elaborate prayer that includes all of these supplications for mercy and forgiveness and for the ability for God to hear his people's cries. And here God reminds him of just what's at stake if God is forsaken, if God is pushed 
to the sidelines, so to speak. I think essentially he's impressing upon Israel and especially upon Solomon to remember the first commandment. (laughs) Thou shalt have no other gods before me, God said to Moses. Commandment number one. (laughs) The most foundational uh, sort of premise of all religious uh, belief is the fact that there are no other gods besides the God of Israel. And such is what Solomon had just prayed. Remember in chapter 8 verse 23, Solomon confessed... He said, the Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee. There's none beside you. And here God is essentially coming to Solomon and seeking, hey, just remember that. Remember that I'm the only God that is worth serving, that is worth remembering, that is worth worshiping at all. Because if you forget this, if Israel goes and serves, quote, other gods, the results would be devastating. Look again at verse 7. Then will I cut off Israel, or excuse me, uh, the end of verse 6. But go and serve other gods and worship them. Then will I cut off Israel out of the land which I have given them. And this house which I have hallowed for my name will I cast out of my sight. And Israel shall be a proverb and a byword among all people. And at this house which is high, everyone that passeth by shall be astonished and shall hiss. And they shall say, why hath the Lord done thus unto this land and to this house? They shall answer, because they forsook the Lord their God, who brought forth their fathers out of the land of Egypt, and have taken hold upon other gods, and have worshipped them and served them. Therefore hath the Lord brought them upon all this evil. Israel, the the cost, the, the price tag for compromising their faith in the one true God, the price tag for infidelity with this one true God of Israel is ruin, devastation. He says, these are the stakes. They're paying, you would pay a high price for being unfaithful to the one who brought you out. Notice, see, it's all about that moment of the exodus. He's seeking to remind them that all of the particulars of the Mosaic Covenant came about because the Lord their God was their true deliverer. He had brought them out. He had brought them here. They are now settled. The God of Exodus is the God that they serve right now. He hasn't changed one iota. And to forget that would mean the loss of land, the loss of this temple, the loss of this throne. All of it would be lost to oblivion. If Israel lost her first love, so to speak, if she, if she had disregarded her deliverer. And what makes all of these verses so much more foreboding and ominous is just the fact that we know that they come true. We know that all of these things that here are being uttered to Solomon are not just a forewarning, they are almost like a foreshadowing. Because all of these events come true. We know that Israel does go and serve other gods. And we know that they are cut off out of the land. We know that, they, that this house is made into a ruin. And we are still learning the lessons of Israel's infidelity from the one true God that they were called to serve. We know That all of these things come true. So uh, we know that too. But uh, put yourself in the shoes of an an, uh, exiled Israelite. Who would be reading these words from the historian. 
You've been in Babylon for such and such years, and you have this historical report that you're reading. (laughs) And you realize that your present experience is everything that God had warned about. (laughs) That what you are now experiencing is exactly what God had warned the king about. Don't go and serve other gods. Don't go and and lose sight of the one who had brought you out of of the land of bondage. Wouldn't that just crush you? Wouldn't that just sting you to the core and pierce your heart to realize that we have done exactly all the things that the Lord has warned about? This is exactly, I think, what the, the historian is here wanting us to see. In the, in the quote, lessons from Solomon's fall. He had gone and served other gods. And I think the, the more startling reminder from these lessons is just the fact that these, other, quote, other gods, which can swiftly make us lose sight of our first love, are not in and, in and of themselves bad. They are other gods that come and claim the throne of our hearts. And yes, eventually lead us to lose sight of our first love. I'm going to go through them this morning. Hopefully in the time remaining. Four lessons from Solomon's fall. Which leads to this great disruption which we'll get to in chapter 11. Because here this is where the narrative turns. The historian, as we have said, has been using all of these positive images and positive rhetoric to talk about the throne. And here he's going to make a turn in chapter 11 to get into our mind's eye just how far Solomon has fallen. But go back. The first lesson we have here is a lesson about prosperity. A lesson about prosperity. Because I want you to notice uh, chapter 4. Go back to chapter 4. Because here I think we have sort of proof positive of the sort of, you know, the familiar image that we have of King Solomon and his extravagance and his very lavish and luxurious living. Here it's sort of proven for us in, 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 in no certain terms. Look at verse 22 of, of chapter 4. As the historian notes, some of the provisions for a single day in Solomon's court. Notice verse 22, and Solomon's provisions for one day was 30 measures of fine flour and three score measures of meal, 10 fat oxen and 20 oxen out of the pastures, and 100 sheep besides hearts and roebucks and fallow deer and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river from the Tipsha even to Azza over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on all sides round about him. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, from Dan even to Beersheba, all the days of Solomon. He relays a number of extremely outrageous sort of amenities and details for a single day in Solomon's court. We should keep in mind, though, that Solomon's Israel, as here the historian is noting, is a vast and very sizable kingdom. So those who are in his court is also a very sizable court that he is ministering to and as he is running. His authority is, is almost uh, unspeakable. Solomon is ruling a very wide and far-reaching kingdom. Therefore, he has a lot of mouths to feed, so to speak. So it's slightly more understandable, so to speak, in some of these details. 
But even more details are given if you jump over to chapter 10. Regarding the lavishness of Solomon's Israel, of Solomon's palace and and kingdom and his abode. Look at chapter 10, verse 14. It says, Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 603 score and six talents of gold. Beside that he had of the merchantmen and of the traffic of the spice merchants and of all the kings of Arabia and of the governors of the country. And jump down to verse 18. Moreover, the king made a great throne of ivory and overlaid it with the best gold. And the throne had six steps and the top of the throne was round behind. And there were stays on either side of the place of the feet. And two lions stood beside these stays. And the twelve lions stood there on the one side and on the other upon the six steps. There was not the like made in any kingdom. And all, king, on, excuse me, and all King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold. And all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. None were of silver. It was nothing accounted of in the days of Solomon. For the king had at sea a navy of Tarshish with the navy of Hiram. Once in three years came the navy of Tarshish bringing gold and silver and ivory and apes and peacocks. So King Solomon exceeded all the kings of the earth for riches and for wisdom. <laughs> you you kind of get the sense of what the historian is trying to do through passages like this. He's trying to bring you into the magnificence of this Israel. Think about all of these business ventures that Solomon is doing. All the expansive reaches of Solomon's kingdom. He is abundantly blessed with riches and wisdom and honor. Above, as it says in verse 23 there, above all the kings of the earth. These aren't just, you know, political, uh, exaggerated remarks from the historian. He is telling truth that this is the King Solomon. He is at the peak of all the powers of the world at this time. But it's important to remember who it was that was blessing him with these things. Remember, let me just read these verses. Just remember them. Chapter 3, verse 12. After Solomon has asked for wisdom, what does the Lord do? The Lord says to him, chapter 3, verse 12. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall be none among thee like the kings unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk, then I will lengthen thy days. God was the giver of all these things. This elaborate kingdom that now Israel was experiencing and enjoying. This uh, incredible and immaculate throne that Solomon was sitting upon as the height of worldly power is here. All because of God's blessing upon him. It was God that had chosen to make Solomon prosperous. It was God that had chosen to make Israel a blessed nation just as he had promised to do. This was his prerogative. He is the giving God. He is almost in a sense, you get this, I just get this sense throughout these chapters that God is almost showing off what it looks like for a nation to be blessed by the one true God. Their prosperity, they owe to him. Israel's successes aren't about Israel. 
Solomon's achievements aren't about his wisdom and ability and dexterity and his ability to see through the ethics of the day and to make wise business decisions. It is all about the God that was behind them. It was about the God who had promised to make Israel a blessed nation. It was all about God's words. Such is why... If you go over to chapter 11, and I know we're flipping on in a lot of different places, but I want you to see this. This is what makes these words in chapter 11, verses 9 and 10, so startling. Look at verse 9 of chapter 11. And the Lord, this is the same Lord that was blessing Israel, that was blessing Solomon, that was showing off his ability to bless and give. And look at verse 9. And the Lord was angry... With Solomon, because his heart was turned from the Lord God of Israel, which had appeared unto him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after, quote, other gods. But he kept not that which the Lord commanded. It's evident, I think, from this passage, and you look at the life of King Solomon, that Solomon's heart was taken by this God of prosperity. All of the historians' remarks regarding Solomon's successes up to this point almost read like a resume of self-sufficiency. Look at all these things that Solomon is doing. It's almost like you get this, I get this picture that Solomon is like Israel's King Midas. And everything he touches turns to gold. <laughs> everything that he does prospers and is, it is very wealthy. And he is, a, he is a king of success. And I think to be sure the path between those heights of prosperity to the depths of self-reliance is a very short one. And very quickly, Solomon came to believe that all of these things that he, were doing, that he was doing were because of his wisdom. That he was the one that was doing it. He was the one that was making Israel prosperous. And this is the, this is the tough thing we have to keep in tension through chapters like this. Because all of these business decisions that Solomon makes, however practical, however logical, however wise... They might be good and, 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 and okay in the moment, but they lead to, and you can trace Solomon's sort of growing independence. Where eventually, the Solomon of chapter 11 is a very self-reliant king. One who was okay with relying on his own abilities to maneuver this kingdom that God had blessed him with. Which is a shame. Considering that this King Solomon was one who should have known what it looked like to rely on God. The example of his father. <laughs> one who was very much dependent upon the Lord for all things. And yet Solomon was given over to this God of prosperity. And so what is the lesson for us? I think it's to be mindful of who makes you prosperous in the first place. You see, whatever measure of success that you and I experience in this life, is the outcome should always be one of gratefulness. Not look at me and look at my achievements, but one of God, thank you for blessing me in this way. 
Because I didn't do it. I didn't accomplish this. I didn't make this come about. It is God working and moving and him blessing. He's the one that deserves all of the credit. We have to keep this in our mind's eye as we see Solomon move through all of these phases of his kingship. To where now he had given over to this God of prosperity. He had forgotten the God who had, who had promised to make him blessed from the very beginning. A lesson about prosperity. But notice number two. A lesson about prestige. Go back to chapter four. Look at those last remaining verses. The end of chapter four is a really significant section. I think because it sort of hints at the very expansive reach of Solomon's influence in the ancient world. Where eventually kings and, and people from all surrounding nations are coming to quote here the wisdom of Solomon. Notice verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding exceeding much and largeness of heart even as the sand that is on the seashore. And Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the children of the east country and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all men, than Ethan, the Ezrahite, than Heman, the, and Chacol, and Darda, and the sons of Mahol. And his fame was in all the nations round about. And he spake 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were a 1,005. And he spake of trees from the cedar tree that is in Lebanon, even unto the hyssop that springeth out of the wall. He spake also of beasts and of fowl and of creeping things and of fishes. And there came of all people to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all kings of the earth which had heard of his wisdom. Everyone's flocking to this king. Everyone is flocking to the sage to hear some semblance, some crumb of insight from this O wise Solomon. From the furthest reaches of the known world, they're coming to Solomon's throne to hear him impart some saying to their moments, to their life. Such, I think, is what chapter 10 is all about. If you look at the beginning of chapter 10, we have this very famous moment where the queen of Sheba visits King Solomon's court. She comes there. And I think the story is here. Given by the historian to sort of give evidence to what he has just claimed. That everyone is flocking to hear Solomon. Yes, including this queen from over a thousand miles away. She's coming to hear if this, all of this hullabaloo about this King Solomon and his wisdom is true. I want to see if this is really what it's all cracked up to be. Notice verse 1. And when the Queen of Sheba, chapter 10, 1 had heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to prove him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great train, with camels that bear spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she was come to Solomon, she communed with him of all that was in her heart. She's seeing if Solomon, if all the rumors were true, so to speak, around surrounding this, this man Solomon, so she presses him. With all these hard questions, perhaps about life, perhaps about ethics. She's attempting to, to navigate Solomon's trustworthiness. See if his spirituality is all that it's cracked up to be. And we get this amazing moment. 
Where she, this, this queen, this Gentile queen from a thousand miles away is now so impressed with Solomon and his court that she gives this very glowing testimony. And notice what she says. Look at verse 6. And she said to the king, It was a true report that I heard in mine own land of thy acts and of thy wisdom. Howbeit I believed not the words until I came, and mine eyes had seen it. Behold, the half of what was told to me, thy wisdom and prosperity exceedeth the fame which I had heard. Happy are thy men, and happy are, thy, are these thy servants which stand continually before thee, and that hear thy wisdom. Blessed be the Lord thy God, which delighted in thee to set thee on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. Therefore, he made thee king, and to do justice and judgment. What an amazing testimony that here, this one from afar off, who perhaps doesn't even believe in the Jehovah of Israel, sees that all of this extravagance is because of the God of Israel. It's because of the Lord thy God that he delights to bless in thee, that he has blessed you in this way. What an amazing moment that this queen sees this. That all of this prosperity is because of someone else. But perhaps this is conjecture and perhaps I'm reading reading between the lines, so to speak. But knowing the human heart as I do, being a human, I am 1,000% sure that the, the prestige that Solomon experienced and the, pro- and the popularity that he was able to achieve affected him. That, 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 that all of the times that Solomon was sought after to impart wisdom and each time it was easier for him to drift away from utter dependence on God. Each time he's seen as the wise one, it is easier and easier for him to believe that. It is easier and easier for him to convince himself that, yes, I am the wise one who is able to answer, quote, hard questions. You know, it's curious to note that throughout Solomon's reign, and I I checked, and I'm pretty sure I checked okay. If you look at this passage in in 1 Kings and you look at the parallel in, in 2 Chronicles, that to note that throughout his reign there is never a mention of a prophet's council. There's, it's believed that the prophet Nathan was still the active one who would be uh, sort of uh, encouraging Solomon with wise words. One still filling that role. We, we, men, we saw him mentioned at the beginning of this book. But as soon as he takes the throne, you never get a moment where, he, where he's seeking after wisdom from someone who can impart a word from God for him. You never get that. You never get that moment. Which I think is a really curious detail. And said, he's always the one that's giving the wisdom. He is always the one who is, who is, quote, giving insight and encouragement and a prophetic word to the Lord's people. Which I think is indicative of Solomon himself. That he became the wise one. That he became the one who possessed wisdom. And, and therefore, he almost became the fool. <laughs> William Shakespeare said that in one of his plays, that the fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. (laughs) 
which is nothing but a remix of scripture. In fact, this is, comes from one of Solomon's Proverbs. Listen to this. Proverbs chapter 12 verse 15 has a very curious line for us which applies to Solomon's moment. Proverbs 12 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth, he, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. The wisest thing Solomon could have ever done was hearken unto wise counsel, and yet we never see that happening. So, what's the lesson of this lesson of prestige? I think it's too. Remember that regardless of what position you have been put in, you are there by divine appointment. You didn't get yourself there. God, in his blessing, allowed you to be where you are. And therefore, it is by God's grace and God's grace alone that you are there. Which brings me, I think, to another lesson. A lesson about prosperity, a lesson about prestige. Thirdly, a lesson about power. You're seeing all of these little interesting, quote, other gods that Solomon is here bowing to and falling before. And notice chapter 4. Go back again to chapter 4 of 1 Kings in verse 20. Because I want you to see this again. Because the historian, again, as we've noted, is making sure that you or whoever is reading these lines is very aware of how awesome in power this Israel was. Notice verse 20. Judah and Israel were many as the sand which is by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and making merry. And Solomon reigned over all kingdoms from the river unto the land of the Philistines and unto the border of Egypt. They brought presents and served Solomon all the days of his life. So all of Solomon's people, all of his, all of his citizens, so to speak, and all surrounding nations were paying homage to this king. To King Solomon. They didn't want to cross him. They didn't want to invite a skirmish or a war. And this is not surprising when we read of all of the massive army of chariots and the armada of ships that Solomon had amassed. Jump down to verse 26 of chapter 4. And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots. And 12,000 horsemen. And those officers provided victual for King Solomon and for all that came unto King Solomon's table. Every man in his month, they lacked nothing. We get this and we can go also back to chapter 10 and read those verses again about the navy that he had at sea. And we can get this sense and we are made to, yes, by the words of the scripture that this Solomon's kingdom was a powerful kingdom. You didn't want to mess with this Israel. You didn't, you didn't want to cross them in any way. And I think though. That for all of the magnificence that we have been made to see and read and hear. For all of the splendor that Solomon has been displaying. I think the fact of it all. The fact behind it all. Is that uh, Solomon had compromised his faith. In small ways. But he had compromised his faith and where he had derived his power. Why do I believe that? Well, go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and look at verse 14. Here, as the 
Mosaic Covenant is being established in detail, part of it included the fact that whoever was sitting upon the throne was made to make a copy of the law for himself, written in his hand. So as to be a reminder and serve as sort of the linchpin reminder that all of what he is doing and all of what he is seeing and all of what he is achieving is because of someone else. But I want you to note, it. note look at Deuteronomy 17. I'm going to read verses 14 down to the end of the chapter. And just keep a tick, keep a, a tally mark in your, in your mind's eye of how many of these things that Solomon violated during his reign. <laughs> Notice verse 14. When thou art come unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me, like as all the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him king over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One, from among thy brethren shalt shalt thou set king over thee, thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother. But he shall not multiply horses to himself... Nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, you shall henceforth return no more to that land. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart not turn away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be, when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write unto him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests and Levites. And it shall be with him, and he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he, sh- that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to keep all the words of his law, and these statutes to do them, that his heart be not lifted up above his brethren, and that he turn not aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left, to the end that he may prolong his days in his kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. You look at all those things, Solomon's doing them. Multiplying horses, going to Egypt, doing business with all of these lands, multiplying wives unto himself. And uh, there's no record that he wrote any copy of this law for himself. You see all of these things. And we have all of this outward splendor and wealth, which are indeed evidences of God's blessing. But behind all of that, it's almost like a mask that Solomon was putting up that betrayed the fact that he was compromising who he believed in. And who it was that had given him this prosperity, that had given him this prestige, and who had blessed him with this power. See, the decay of Israel under Solomon's reign was a slow and gradual one. It was a deterioration of bit by bit as he entertained more and more of the world's philosophies and occupations and pleasures until suddenly we wake up and we find the Solomon of chapter 11. Which brings me to my last point. A lesson about prosperity and, and prestige and power and a lesson about pleasure. Because you have to see this moment. Because right away, the historian wants to put this in context. Notice verses 1 and 2. But King Solomon loved many strange women. Together with the daughter of Pharaoh, woman of the Moabites and Ammonites, Edomites, Zidonians and Hittites. 
of the nations, concerning which the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Ye shall not go into them, neither shall they come into unto you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon claimed unto these in love. <laughs> he desires these women, these relationships that God had forbidden, had explicitly said were, quote, off limits, so to speak. And it caused him to compromise his devotion to the one true God. He had already bowed to this idea that he was the one making Israel prosperous. He had already bowed to the idea that he was the wise one. He was the prestigious one. He had already bowed to the God that said that he was the one who was powerful. So who is to stop him here? Who's to stop him now? And it's not just that he's intermarrying with these that God had said were forbidden. It's just that these women were changing him. As just the Lord had said. Notice verse 3. And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Zidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and went not fully after the Lord as did David his father. Then did David, or excuse me, then did Solomon build in high place for Chemosh. The abomination of Moab in the hill that is before Jerusalem. And for Molech, the abomination of the children of Ammon. And likewise did he for all his strange wives, which burnt incense and sacrificed unto their gods. <laughs> it's not just that he's wrote, having marriages with him, perhaps for political reasons, perhaps for social reasons. He's pursuing them, as it says, out of his desire. But he's also now inviting them to worship their same gods. He is being changed and not he doing the changing. He's not affecting change on anyone. Now he is being influenced negatively as it says and it reiterates over and over in those first couple verses that his heart was turned away. His deepest and his truest downfall was allowing his heart to be twisted. As, and it's not as though he wasn't warned. You can go back to chapter 9 verse 4 and look at God had warned him that you have to stay true to me. And he was warned in chapter 6 verse 12, stay true to me. Chapter 3 verse 14, stay true to me and walk after my statutes. (laughs) Every step of the way, God is reminding him, walk after me, pursue me alone. There is no other gods except for me. And yet Solomon is bowing before all these other gods. He compromised. And as we'll see in the weeks to come, the result was devastating casualty. The ripping apart of the kingdom of the one true God. It all stems from the fact that this king was bowing to a bunch of lesser lords. A bunch of lesser gods that could never ever give him what he sought after. Which brings me to this, that Solomon is the great oxymoron of scripture. You know, like jumbo shrimp. Or deafening silence. Or old news. You have here, Solomon is the wisest fool who ever lived. 
This one who was blessed with wisdom out the wazoo, as God said to him, no one is ever going to meet you in terms of wisdom. And yet he wasn't even wise enough to heed it himself. The one who was the wisest man who had ever lived on the face of this earth wasn't even wise enough to master his own passions. To listen to his own words. You can read the Proverbs. What are we to make of all this? What are are we to take away from this fall of Solomon? I think the things that led... I I think the lesson is this. That all of those things that led to Solomon's downfall were not evil in and of of themselves. As we've noted, all of these things were given to him by God. Only that Solomon was his own worst enemy. (laughs) Eventually all of the opulence and the extravagance and the success that, that Israel was blessed with, which was meant to point people to the one true God, Eventually, it just became a signpost to Solomon's ability, to Solomon's wisdom. It was supposed to point to Jehovah, and instead it pointed to him. Which is to say this. That when good things become ultimate things, they become the very gods that God warned about. Good things in your life can become ultimate things. The things that we sort of replace with God. Or for God. For the one true God. And when that occurs, they become the very things that the Lord here warned about. I wonder this morning where we might be serving, quote, other gods in our own lives. In ways that we might not even consciously realize we're not bowing down to Molech, but maybe we're serving the God of our own prestige, or we're serving the God of our own financial success, or we're serving the God of our own ability to make a name for ourselves. We're serving some such God, which is not the one true God that we have been given in this word of Scripture. Where have we left our first love? For the company of some other God. And do we realize how serious God takes that offense? It's not just a simple mistake. He was going to make an object lesson out of the very people that he loved because of their infidelity. (laughs) Do we realize how serious it is when we push God to the sidelines and And make something else enthroned on our heart. See the gifts that we've been given. All of these things that we enjoy. They have nothing to do with us. They are given only because we have a king of all kings. Who loves to lavish his people in grace. And he wants the world to see what type of God he is. He's a giving God. But we offend him. To degrees I don't think we often realize. When we pull the focus off of the giver and onto the gifts. We make these gifts the ultimate things. Instead of the one true God who has given to them to us in the first place. No, I don't think that means we'll have our quote kingdoms taken away. (laughs) 
but maybe he will just take away our freedoms. Maybe he'll take away our conveniences and our comforts. Maybe he'll take away things that we've grown so accustomed to and we've held out as ultimate instead of him. If there's one thing, and I promise I'm done, I'm almost done. If there's one thing that this pandemic has revealed to me, is that the American church is very prone to serve, quote, other gods. We like our comforts, and we like our conveniences. And when those are disrupted, when those are held in the balance, Our faith quavers. Our faith also is held in the balance. Perhaps I think this tragic season of life is not so tragic at all. If it gets the church, if it gets us to wake up to the other lesser gods that we've been bowing to. To see that all of these other things, that yes, they're good and they're right in their own way. But yes, there is nothing as ultimate as the Lord of all lords. The king of all kings who is still ruling and reigning. No matter how many conveniences he takes away. No matter how many comforts he takes away. No matter how many freedoms he jettisons. There is still a king who we ought to serve. And his name is Jesus. There's no other God like him. There's no other savior like him. Regardless of what he allows us to pass through. May we see that there's only one true God of our hearts. And his name is Jesus Christ. The Christ alone that we sing about as the Savior. He is, as Matt Shively was talking about this morning. He is the Kyrios, the Messiah, the King. So when Jesus comes and declares in Mark chapter 1 that he is coming and preaching the kingdom, he's talking about himself. He's making it very plain what is going on. He is the king of all kings. And yes, even now, this morning, you have a God who is on his throne. And only he is worthy of our utmost devotion and worship. Nothing else comes even close. Who are you bowing before this morning? Or what are you bowing before this morning? If it's something other than this God, we ought to take stock of that. We ought to be brought to our knees as in a moment of clarity and say, Thank you, God, for waking me up to see these other lords I'm worshiping. But may we all, with freedom and grace, know this one true God. Let us bow our heads and close our eyes.